Today's episode was also a video interview, so I encourage you to check it out at youtube.com slash Eric Hunley. Also, there I have a live stream where today's guest will be appearing next week to answer your questions. And today's guest is Don Bentley. Uh, Don Bentley is a former military. He was an Apache pilot, then was in the FBI, and now works the private sector. And he is a best-selling author. In the second part of this interview, we go into a very particular story about his time in the military as part of Operation Red Wings, where he saw the conflict from the sky. It's, it's quite harrowing an impactful tale, and I think you will really appreciate the service this man has given the country. I present to you, Don Bentley. My name is Eric Hundley, and this is Unstructured, where we have dynamic and formal conversations with some amazing people. Today we are joined by another author. I'm really excited. This is Don Bentley, and what I love about Don Bentley is he's a lot like Brian Freeman, previous author, and he's a bit of an overnight sensation. And by that, I mean the average overnight sensation is at least 10 years. How are you doing today, Don? <laughs> I'm doing fantastic, and I'm an underachiever in that regard. My overnight sensation was about 17 years, so Brian certainly has me on that. <laughs> uh, actually, no, he doesn't. You've got him. And I wanted to do a comparison because I don't know if you're familiar with Brian Freeman. Uh-uh. He is a, a New York Times bestselling thriller author. And you know how they have Amazon category, number one category, yeah. blah, yeah. blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. Well, he was number one on Amazon, the entire awesome. catalog. Um, he That's writes amazing. A mystery series with Jonathan Stride, and he took over Robert Ludlum's Born series. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Now I know. Okay. So, so he's big yes. time. Yes. He, yep, he really yep. is big time. But what I think you appreciate is that he has five books in the drawer, and it took him 20 years. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's brutal. I mean, when, when people – and it's funny that you phrased it that way because – the what I said before is Twitter is fantastic, but the thing about Twitter is you see a moment in time, and so you see somebody that gets this book deal, and you're like, oh man, you're happy for them, but you're also at the same time thinking, you know, when is it going to be my turn? When am I ever sure. going to get there? And what you don't often see is exactly what you're saying. Now is their moment in time for that book deal, but it's been 17 years or 20. Or Brandon Sanderson was famous for saying, I think he wrote 13 books that never sold before he wrote the first one that did. And so it certainly is not a, uh, a business for the faint of heart. For me, it was three books in 17 years that didn't sell and an MFA before I finally wrote the book that did sell in a two book deal. And it's, it's, it's a little disheartening, but at the same time, you know, you think any other profession or any other craft, mm -hmm. there are hours and hours and hours, right. That you spend trying to get good enough to make a living in that craft. And, and for whatever reason, folks have the idea with writing that, well, I've written a book, so therefore it must be good enough to sell. And generally it doesn't turn out that right way. There are some, like Brad Taylor's first book, first book he ever wrote, he sold and hit the New York Times bestseller list. So he's the wow. exception maybe that proves the rule. But for the rest of us, yes, I think it is a slugfest for sure. When uh there's actually a lot of parallels to podcasting and YouTubing and different things. Mm -hmm. And, yep. um, you yep. know, I'm not trying to pick on you or Brian or anybody, but you have to suck for a while. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's another common question folks ask 
ask me when they when I explain a little bit more about my history, and I'm sure Brian's probably gotten the same question is, well, can't you go back now and sell those other three books that didn't sell? And, and you know, you kind of got to swallow your pride a little bit and say, well, there was a reason those three books didn't sell. And it was frankly because they weren't good enough yet. And what when I go through, you know, my protagonist is is Matt Drake, who is a DIA case officer. And I did that and, and he and I write him in the first person and, and it's hopefully kind of a witty first person. And that came through those three books of kind of with authors, you talk about finding your voice and, right. and that can mean a, a bunch of different things. But what my editor describes it as is, is you want to Mark Graney and Brad Taylor and Kyle Mills, all those guys are already Brad Thor are knocking it out of the park and there is not room for you to be another Brad Taylor. Brad Taylor is already an incredible Brad sure. Taylor. And so what you have to figure out is what are you bringing to the genre that is same but different? And, and the same part is the conventions within that genre, that it's a thriller, that it's fast paced, that it probably has geopolitical implications. But the difference is a lot of times, what is your author voice? You know, How do you relate to the audience different or what are some of the choices you made? You know, I, I picked the Defense Intelligence Agency, the DIA, because it was a less known agency. And when I was an FBI agent, I got to rub shoulders with a lot of interesting people. And I thought, you know, here's something that not a whole lot of people know about. And there's an inherent conflict built in between the DIA and CIA. And maybe I can leverage sure. some of that. And then the same thing with deciding to write in a first person voice for my protagonist, Nelson DeMille has been a huge influence on me as a writer, and he has these fantastic um, group Corey. of books written. John Corey, right? And I remember reading the first John Corey book, and I told my wife, like, I would read about him going grocery shopping, right? Because he's so funny, and it's so engaging, and you come back just to see what John Corey is going to say next. And so, I, you know, as you're looking at the stellar folks who are out there making a living in this genre right now – you have to ask yourself, what can I bring that is a little bit different, but would still fit in there and hopefully, you know, attract folks attention. And so it took me a good three books and 17 years to, to figure that out. So, yeah. Well, it, it's work. I mean, it's yeah. a problem. It is work. <laughs> and speaking of DeMille, have you ever read Brian Haig, um, son of Alexander? I have not. I uh -uh. highly recommend him. If you like a smart ass lead protagonist. He has a JAG lawyer lead character who his writing is right up there with DeMille in terms of smartness. Mm -hmm. Now, I listen to audiobooks primarily. Yep. So Scott Brick reads them. And anytime Scott Brick reads, it's sarcastic. <laughs> it's just the guy's got that sarcastic tone. Yeah, 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 yeah. But Brian Haig, highly recommend him. Uh, David Rollins, who's actually a friend of mine, has been on the show, also has a, a smartass character. And he's an Australian writing about an American military uh, huh. character. So it's, That's it's kind of funny. Well, yeah, when that he names really the wrong funny. car. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's a treat. But yeah, definitely all of those. Now, on the same path, one thing that's interesting about uh, Brian Freeman as well, and I know I mm -hmm. keep bringing him up, but I love to drop yeah, parallels. Yeah. Sure. Um, he could not find an agent to save his life. I mean, mm -hmm. it was incredibly difficult for him to get an agent. And ultimately, he was at a company party. I think he was with a marketing mm -hmm. agency. And 
another person in the agency. It was either their roommate in college or friend or, or, mm. or family member who happened to be an agent. The person said here, they took the book to the agent directly. Then wow. he got sold overnight. Finally, you, yep. from what I've studied and researched appear mm -hmm. to have had to kind of do a similar thing in terms of building personal connections in order to yeah. at least have somebody pay attention to you. Yeah, I think, um, so I, so the agent I have now is actually my third agent in the, um, in the, the first agent I had was when I was first starting out and it was 2000, maybe 2000, I got serious about writing in 2001 um, wrote a bunch of short stories and then decided to try and write a novel and wrote, you know, one of the, one of, um, huge influences for me growing up were folks like Tom Clancy and, and not just every, I love the Jack Ryan series, but Red Storm Rising or, um, Larry Bond who wrote Red Phoenix, that epic military thriller, the sprawling stuff or Harold Coyle who wrote Team Yankee. And so back in the in in the nineties and stuff, there were more of those more of those big kind of sprawling ep epic military thriller books. And and Mark Graney and and Rip Rawlings have now kind of revitalized that genre with um, mm -hmm. Red Metal. But the first book I wrote was in that same vein. My first assignment out of flight school, I was an Apache gunship pilot, was in Korea. And so I wrote a novel that was kind of reimagining the Korean War and. I had an agent and, and the book didn't sell. And so then I wrote, I went to Afghanistan on a tour of duty as a Apache troop commander and then came back and wrote a book about Afghanistan and got an agent and it didn't sell. And so the third, at, at that point in my career, I thought, you know, maybe there is something from a craft perspective that I haven't figured out yet, you know, because, because the crazy thing about writing in general is it's, almost as if you are building furniture and you, you build this amazing chest of drawers for somebody, right? And you spend a year working on this chest of drawers and it's perfect and you go to hand it to them and what you get back is a form letter that says, not for me. And you, and you have no idea if maybe the chest was the wrong color, maybe it wasn't the wood they like, none of those things. And so, or maybe you're just analogy. not a good carpenter. No, it's a great analogy because you don't have the ability. If the customer came to the right. store and said, I want a blue chest that has this, exactly. then you could build to that. But you're exactly. in this weird void where you have to say, hmm, who's my avatar? I hate marketing terms, yep. but it's appropriate. You have to <laughs> figure out who is your mythical audience and what is right. it they are seeking. And yep. so you have to kind of be at both ends of it. So that's right. That's I'm exactly not sure how you, right how you um, cross it, that divide. And it's, and I think part of it is reading a lot in your genre so that you know what, what chest of drawers other people are buying. But then part of it too, is having someone as a critique partner or a series of readers who are good enough that can, my agent says that your critique partner should not be related to you by blood or marriage, right? Oh, you need somebody who who is honest enough that can tell you, Hey, this chest of drawers isn't good enough yet. And so I was kind of in that position and said, you know, I'll go back and get um, my MFA. There's this great program called Seton Hill University that offers a low residency MFA that that is 
um, unabashedly genre focused. And so when you go in there, you say, I want to be a thriller writer. I want to be a horror writer. I want to be a science fiction writer. And your advisor is a published writer in one of those genres. And your thesis is your thesis novel. And so I finished my thesis novel and went to Thriller Fest, which was another inflection point in my career for the very first time to pitch my novel and said, okay, this is it. I'm pitching my novel. I have an agent. It'll be sold. And and that'll be that. And nobody wanted, I had several agents, including the one I had now that asked for fools, but after they read their manuscript, nobody wanted it. And it was kind of like a gut punch to me to say, man, I'd gotten an agent with both of my other two books. I went and got a degree to become a better writer. And now I can't even get an agent for this book. And so there was you know, an appropriate amount of sulking that occurred after that. Sure. But then what I eventually did is is kind of what you're alluding to is going back to Thriller Fest year after year. And the amazing thing about writing conferences is everywhere else, even frankly, graduate school, you're guessing about what it takes to actually sell that novel. Right. And you have some people who maybe have had some success who are your instructors that maybe can kind of point you in the right direction. But at Thriller Fest, you can buy a beer and sit down with Brad Taylor and listen to a master's class on his journey as a writer and what worked and what didn't work. And you can meet editors there and publishers. And so Barbara Puel, who's my agent now, um, initially rejected my manuscript, but gave me some pretty detailed feedback on why. And every year at Thriller Fest, I'd meet her, we'd hang out. I got to be very good friends with um, Nick Petrie, who's one of her, her um, clients who writes the great um, series. The first book of that is The Drifter. Graham Brown, who writes with Clive Cussler, like all these folks who were who were where I wanted to be, who were working as writers, who were doing it. And so you can you can kind of talk to those and start to build, um, make yourself better as a writer, as well as kind of what you're referring to. Build a little groundswell about yourself just from the standpoint of people start to know who you are and they know that you're a fan of the genre before you're somebody trying to hawk a book. And I feel like in in my humble opinion, that's a lot of times mistakes people make is they come on to Twitter or to something like that just saying, here's my book, here's my book, here's my book, rather than being a legitimate fan of the genre and those kind of writers. And so – it was with Barbara after I think it took me three or four years because I took that book back and pitched it another two times and and nobody wanted it. And so I wrote the when I wrote the final book, I had known her for four years at that point. And so when I wrote it, I said, I am only sending this to you. I'm going to do an exclusive submission because I know you as a person. I know all your clients. You're the one I want. And she came back and accepted it and gave me some pretty incredible rewrite notes and we rewrote it. And then we, when we went out with it, it sold um, to Tom Colgan and, and, and Berkeley in like eight or nine days or something like that. And so it sold very quickly, but that was another one where I, I knew Tom a little bit over Twitter mm-hmm. because I was a fan of his writers and I was a fan of his books. And so my name was not unfamiliar to him when it came across his desk because we had interacted before. And, and I think it's, you know, you talked about using marketing terms before. I think people can go too crazy with that and sure. think if I network enough, they're going to buy my book. And 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 you got to be a great writer for somebody to spend money on your book. But I think if you can maybe put all of those things together, it, it certainly helps. And, and again, just my humble opinion or my two cents, 
the biggest thing you can be is be a nice guy and be an actual fan of the genre and not not coming into Twitter, to writers' conferences, to whatever, just to hawk you and your book, but to be there genuinely because you're a fan of all the incredible writing that goes on there. Yeah, and what you did essentially, and we have a, a mutual acquaintance online, um, Gavin Stone, yeah. who actually introduced yep. us. Yep. And I think he's yep. actually doing exactly that. The guy is yep. not only a fan, but a community member. And what yep. I think you were doing is not only just saying you're a fan of the genre, there's the old saying of you are the, what is it, a combination of the five people you hang out with? Sure. And sure. when you're associating with these authors that you admire, you're yep. actually absorbing from Absolutely. them. And you're building an association where you're known as being part of that crowd. So it's, you know, the whole thing sure. of... um you know, your your parents always say, don't hang out with the other kids because you get that. <laughs> well, this is kind of the reverse of that. So it can sure. be both. Yep. And, and I think that's true. And I, like I said, I keep harking on, on or harping on Thriller Fest, but it really did change the trajectory of my career. And and what's amazing about that conference. So Kimberly Howe runs it and does a fantastic job. But it was founded by some of the biggest names in Joe the industry, Fender like and Gerald Lee, Lines, right? Yeah, Lee Lines. Child and and Steve Barry and you know Gail Lins and all these luminaries. And what was awesome about it is they set the tone from the beginning that you know Lee Child doesn't walk around with any handler. Steve Barry doesn't. I literally almost ran Ann Rice over in the elevator one time. And <laughs> and it's and so you have these amazing writers who are not pretentious, who don't have handlers and who, you know, will teach classes and you can hang out with them and meet them. And so even if you're lucky enough to start getting a little bit of success, it certainly keeps you in check, right? Because who, you know, there's Ann Rice standing over there talking to a bunch of people or Lee Child or whatever, and, and they are not too successful to do this or help fellow writers out. And so I think like that whole community is is just fantastic, and I think is that in graduate school, I think were the two things that that changed my trajectory as a writer. I can totally agree about um, conferences. Uh, I'm in the podcast mm -hmm. field. We have a podcast conference. Yep. But what I found is what I call the hallway track, mm -hmm. and that is the most important factor of a conference. And this is a lesson to anybody watching. Uh, I just yep. did a, a pod fest this year. It was like right before the end of time and everything stopped. But yep. I attended maybe one, uh, one and a half sessions over a period of four sessions. That's how little yep. Yep. I did. I spent my entire time talking to people I had met online, yeah. on Twitter, yep. on other Absolutely. shows I admire. It, it's, you know, on down the line. And then well into the evening, having beers is so important. Yep. I don't think people realize that, that building actual relationships with people, non-transactional, because most yeah. of the time you're not even talking yep. about the fact you're a writer. Mostly yep. you're just yep. talking about, oh, why did you do that? I bet you spend a lot of time telling uh, war stories about the FBI and uh, <laughs> your time in Afghanistan, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. And and that is the, and again, I think that's some of the brilliance of how um Kimberly Howe and those folks have set it up is that it is in this hotel that has this big bar that everybody can congregate at, you know, after the sessions are done and you get more, you know, I remember when the first summer or the first Thriller Fest session, 
I was able to go to after I had my book deal, my my agent invited some people over and said, you know, hey, talk to Don about what it was like your first year when your debut comes out. And I'm looking around the table and there's Patrick Lee, New York Times bestselling author, you know, Graham Brown, New York Times bestselling author with Clive Cussler, Nick Petrie, all these. And I'm like, I'm sitting here getting a master's class by these people who I want to be someday. And it's happening in this back table in the bar, you know, in Thriller Fest. And, and so absolutely. And, and all of these people, like you said, I was a fan of before and it was, you know, a real relationship rather than a transactional, will you do this for me? You know, one way or another, it was just people honestly sitting back and sharing what they'd done right and what they'd done wrong in their career. And we're happy to try and help the new guy. And it, it's fantastic. Yeah. You're just hanging out. I mean, <laughs> this is, yep. uh, and with the podcast, because, um, podcasting is the same thing. It's I'm alone. Now I fortunately do interviews. Yep. So you and I are building a relationship right now. But yep. in general, I edit alone. I think about the questions yep. alone. I do research alone. You write your books alone. So going yep. to a conference, you get to meet your people who Absolutely. actually want to talk to you about what you were doing because your family members are sick of it. They don't give a <laughs> damn. They're not going to listen to a show or read your book or anything. They're just like, Absolutely. Oh, again, do I have to hear it again? So there's that element of it too. You're hanging out with your Absolutely. people. Yeah. Yeah. I remember talking with Nick Petrie about that after the first, he and I, I think, my second thriller fest was his first or something. And at the end we were talking and I said, Hey, do you think you're going to come back again? And he looked at me, he's like, these are my people. And and that was exactly what you said. It's like for that four days worth of time or whatever, you're surrounded by people who do what you do every day, who get what you're trying to do, who, you know, kind of understand you at, at, at a level that, that your family, while well-meaning does not most of the time. So, yeah. For sure. Now, I want to cover really quickly before we go into some of your history, because I definitely want to get into sure. that. The feeling of success. And mm. I I think that it's such a fascinating thing because you've been fighting and fighting and fighting. Yeah. And you're always against like this resistance. Was it almost <laughs> surreal when, yeah. because I've experienced some of that too, when it's like, Okay, I've been doing it over and over and over yep. and, and begging and yep. pleading. Here, check this out. Do whatever. Uh, just throwing it. And all of a sudden, it's like they're not resisting you. Yeah. How did that feel? It is. It, it was crazy. Because um, like you said, there's there's more than one, you know, more times than you would care to admit on that journey. You're 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 looking and you're like, am I just wasting my time? Like, is this is this something that is ever going to bear fruit? Should I stop? Because, you know, I have three kids and, and they're, um, my oldest is getting ready to go to college. And then I have one in high school and one in junior high and, and the amount much the same way I'm sure is for you. The amount of time that you're devoting family thing, right. On top of your day job, on top of everything else. And so, you know, there, and, and there's no, you know, it, it seems like a lot of times when you're in that moment, it's either binary or not. It's either you're, you're succeeding or you're not. And it's hard to see any indications even showing that you are on the path to succeed or that if you write one more book or – and there was a pretty – that time when I when I first met Nick Petrie, I was in a pretty dark spot. And, and our agent – wasn't my agent at the time, and she is now – introduced us and said, you guys talk to each other. Nick's had a book out. 
And so it was supposed to be a 10 minute conversation. And like an hour and a half later, I'm like laying my hand in my head in his lap. And I'm like, I'm never going to make it. I'm never. And he literally like kind of grabbed me by the lapels. And he's like, you're me two years ago. Yeah, exactly. He's like, you're me two years ago. I wrote three books that didn't sell. My fourth sold. Your fourth is going to sell. And so I went home and wrote that fourth book. And then when Barbara took it immediately, and then I had had some some friends of mine who were in the industry were good enough to read it. And the feedback started. You start to kind of hope, but you're still holding yourself in because you've been sure. beat down so many times. And then when you know she, she your agent calls you and says, OK, we have an offer on the book and you can't even hear anything else. And you're like, somebody's going to pay me money like this is finally going to happen. And it is. I mean, it's a crit- pretty incredible feeling. But I think. I think one of the things you get for for struggling and struggling and taking it, like I said, in my case, 17 years is just that sense of gratitude when it finally all comes together. Gratitude, number one, humility, and number two, humility and not to take it for granted, because you see there's there's nothing promised you beyond um, that that contract. Right. That's been signed. And, and I'm sure it's the same in your industry. You've seen people who were quite certain they were going to have a career and, and are great writers and something terrible happens and they don't get another contract. And and so that's the, the thing that I've tried to, from my perspective is just be humble and grateful and enjoy it with the attitude of, if I'm very fortunate, I'll get to write another book. If I'm not, I got to see my book on a bookshelf. And that's something I've wanted to do since I was 13 years old and, and grabbed a copy of Red Storm Rising and said, I want to be a writer someday. And there are a whole lot of people who never get to do that. And so I think I think that's part of it, too, is is recaging what your definition of success is, what you're grateful for. You know, my my wife is my first reader and she's fantastic with it and has been with me through the entire journey. And there were points where I'm like, you know what, I wish I would have worked harder or succeeded faster or something. And when it finally happened, she said, you know, I'm, I'm glad it didn't because your kids growing up, our kids have watched you struggle and struggle and struggle for a thing that you were finally able to achieve. And she's like, you know, that's that's a much better lesson for them than it is if you had been successful straight out of the gate. And so it it is a pretty incredible feeling. And um, I don't know, I try, like I said, I try and walk that line between being very grateful and humble and living in the moment sure. and also not having the expectation that, I'm going to be able to write six books or seven books or eight books down the road. And if that happens, it's fantastic. If it doesn't, I'm going to try and and live this um, to the fullest, I guess. Well, you've had an interesting career to this point, too. I understand you spent (laughs) 10 years in the, I'm going to guess, Army because you're a helicopter. Yeah, 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 Army, yep. And, but why 10? What what happened? And tell me a little about it. Sure. So I went to school on a uh, Army ROTC scholarship, and um, and so after college, I went and was was fortunate enough to get aviation, and not just aviation, but attack aviation. I got to fly Apache helicopters, and it is it is hard to have a bad day uh, when you're flying an Apache helicopter. I mean, it's. When you get to shoot, there's all kinds of great things to shoot on that. But there's a 30 millimeter that hangs underneath the chin bubble that you can slave to your eye. And so you literally look at a target and squeeze the trigger. And when you squeeze the trigger, 
the whole helicopter shakes and it's like this jackhammer hitting you in the chest. And it's, it's the best feeling in the world. And I was a cavalry troop commander in Afghanistan. And that, you know, very much harkens back to the, the, the wild west where the cavalry is coming over the, the hill to save the day. You got to do that in real life and you got to hear people on the radio who needed your help and show up and, and do that help. And so to, to get to that point, I knew I wanted to stay in long enough to be a troop commander, which or which is in in the cavalry is the same as a company commander in the not cavalry. And so you have to the way it works as a as a army officer and as an aviator is you do kind of your platoon time for a while where you fly a lot and then you take a staff job for a couple of years and then you come out and you're a company or troop commander and then you take staff jobs again. And so I knew I wanted to be a troop commander and I knew that I wanted to deploy because I felt like that's what I had signed up for. And that's what, what I had spent my time training to do over and over and over again. But I also knew that, you know, a year away from my family was a long time. And, um, at the time we only had two kids. And so my son was, he was three, three or four when we deployed. So I could kind of talk to him on the phone, but my daughter was only, you know, 18 months or something. And so she, it was really hard and she didn't, she didn't really know who I was when I came back. And oh, it was wow. something, you know, I wanted to do once, but knew it wasn't something that I wanted to continue to do. And I, I have a lot of friends who stayed in and, and did not do that. And they have spent cumulative, you know, five or six years away from their family and their kids to do that, because that's the there's a lot of pride in serving with an all volunteer army. But what that means is the force levels, especially for aviation, because every time a ground unit um, rotates into theater, an aviation unit has to accompany them. And there aren't as many aviation units as ground units. And right. so what you end up, so for instance, when we came back from Afghanistan, our very first staff meeting was the, you know, we packed our gear and, you know, we're receiving stuff off the airplane, came together and they said, here's your next orders to deploy back again in less than a year's time. And that mm -hmm. was kind of your welcome home is get ready because you're going again. And so it was, you know, there are people who have done that and like, like Jack Carr um, stayed in as well and deployed multiple times. But it was something I knew um, that I didn't want to do uh, over and over again. And so it was a pretty fantastic career and was a great, like I don't, I served with some of the most amazing people. Um, I, I'd been fortunate to, to serve in two incredible organizations, the Army and, and the FBI. And I, and I, you know, was very fortunate for what I did in the army, but also never, never regretted that I got out when I got out either. At 10 years, I'd done what I'd wanted to do. And, and I wanted to shift a little and, and focus more on my family, I think. So well, that's, a, that is, um, I think the last time period that you get mm -hmm. out, because if you do one more re-up, yeah. then you're the majority yep. of the way to the 20 plus to retire. So you yep. kind of have to decide at 10 years that am I going to get yep. out now? Because if I re-up, I'm in for life and yep. done. So from what I understand, something happened in the Army, and that actually was mm -hmm. pivotal to the book Without Sanction, yeah. which we haven't said the whole time. His book is Without Sanction, <laughs> folks. You definitely need to check it out. I've read it. It's an excellent book. What exactly happened? Can you yes. share? Uh, yeah, I, I can give you kind of the high level version. So without sanction came from um, it is is a book, I think, at its core about redemption and, and specifically about 
um, the main character, Matt Drake, who is a DIA case officer. And, and when the book starts, he um, is in kind of a self-imposed exile because he thinks something that he has done caused the death of, of an asset and his assets family in Syria and, and, and of some horrific injuries to his best friend. And so, and so he gets over the course of the book, the chance to atone for that. If he is willing to go back to where everything went wrong and and where he had the worst day of his life back in Syria again and do that. And so that, that part of the book was absolutely influenced, um, by my time in Afghanistan and, and, and to kind of put it in perspective, the deployment feels is something that you, you, you spend your entire career training for, you know, it's, it's, and not to, not to, um, lessen the significance of it, but, you know, an analogy might be if you're a professional football player and you're training your entire career to go to the Super Bowl, like that's the one thing, kind of the pinnacle of your profession and what you work for. And deployment feels a lot like that because it's the first time you actually get to do your job for real. It's not a training event. There are lives that are dependent on what you're able to do. You're going out to do what you have trained to do in my case for, you know, seven or eight years at that point. And so what you have to reconcile yourself with and there are a lot of folks who have stories similar to mine is what if it's your chance to, to step on the field um, for the Super Bowl, if you will, and you fumble. And, and that's the last thing that you ever had is you spent your, your entire career getting ready for this one moment in life and in time and it goes sideways and you can't ever get that moment back again. And so for me, what that, what that ended up being is I was on, so, so in Afghanistan for Apaches, you had basically three different kinds of missions. And so the first mission is what's called the ring route mission. And what you're doing is escorting Blackhawks or Chinooks as they fly from fob to fob and outpost to outpost dropping off supplies. And so they're, they're typically missions that um, are very long but are very boring, and, and you're just going from point to sure. point and protecting that aircraft. And then on the other extreme, there are missions that are called direct action missions where there's a ground unit who is going out to do an operation, and you are providing direct gunship support for them. And so it could be we're going to hit an objective and go try and find a high-value target. You know, It could be any number of things. And so those are much – more heavily planned and significant rehearsals and you go over and over through them and tend to be much more, uh, much shorter, but much more intense, right? And is that here's this operation we're going to go out to do. In the middle ground is something called QRF or quick reactionary force. And what QRF is, is that you have a 12 hour shift and you carried a radio. And if that radio went off, you had to be airborne within 30 minutes. And the majority of the time, when that radio went off, you had no idea why why it was going off. And so you would – I was the pilot in command. I would run for the helicopter. My front seater or co-pilot would run for what's called the TOC or the Tactical Operations Center, and they'd give you – here's what we know right now. Here's why you're getting activated, and it could be that there's – you know um, there are troops in contact, and they want you to respond to that and provide gunship support. It could be that somebody was hurt, and they need to be medevaced out, and you're going to provide um, – an escort for the medevac helicopter. 
It could be that there's a general that needs to fly from Kabul to Bagram or vice versa, and you're going to escort his helicopter. It could be anything, right? It's just a 911 mission. And on um, June 28, 2005, I was on the, the QRF shift, and we got activated. And the reason why we got activated is that there was a four-man SEAL team who had gone in the night before to try and set up uh, reconnaissance on a high value target that they were going after and they had been overrun. And so the only thing that we knew was here's the last time we heard from them. Here's a call sign. Here's a grid coordinate go. And that was, and it's very much what um, on one hand is very daunting, but it also it's very much um, what you train for from the perspective of that's what you do as a gunship pilot, right? You get to be the cavalry that rides over the hill and you can hear, you know, a friend of mine, during an earlier tour in Afghanistan was with the 101st Airborne. And, and during the initial operation in Afghanistan, when, when everything went wrong, you could hear Apaches have gunship tape and you could hear guys on the radio out of breath because they're under fire and they're running for cover calling for Apaches. And they're so, you know, you can hear them breathing in between it. And, and I remember listening to that in a pilot's brief before we went to Afghanistan for the guys who had already been into combat and saying, this is what we do. Like, this is what you're going to see. A lot of times it'll be a very chaotic situation. It's in what you have to do quickly, sometimes for someone who is not um, typically folks who are in special operations community are very proficient at calling in air attacks or being able to deconflict fires. It could be a logistics convoy that was ambushed and the person that you finally get on the radio is a logistics specialist who's never talked to an aircraft before in your life. And so, you know, are you prepared to try and talk them through bringing you on target? Because in your, the very first time you bump for real and you get ready to shoot rockets and you see good guys and bad guys in your windshield at the same time and realize you're shooting over top of good guys, that's a significant emotional event because it's not training anymore. You can't screw that up. That, you know, those the last thing that you ever want to do is cause more harm because you're putting steel on a target that isn't an enemy target or you're you're committing fratricide or something like that. And so we got launched that day um, to try and, and rescue that SEAL team. And Marcus Luttrell, you know, tells this story much better than than obviously I ever would as since he was an, an eyewitness in his book Lone Survivor. But the the bottom line is that I was escorting a couple of Blackhawks and there were a couple of Chinooks uh, with more SEALs ahead of me. And um, the Chinook at the, at the very um, front of our of our formation was shot down and I couldn't stop it. And so your you know, your job as a gunship pilot is to try and secure the landing zone before the the helicopters come in the in the in the in this case, SEALs repel down and stuff. And we weren't able to do that and they were shot down and you, you see it happen and you can't stop it and you can't ever get that moment in time back. Right. And so so it very, very quickly becomes at, at when something like that happens, you know, you go through a couple phases. And so the first is trying to say, you know, was there something I could have done differently? Was there you relive it over and over and over again, trying to figure out what you could have done that would have changed the outcome. And then most of the time there's not, or, it, or even if there is, it still doesn't do anything to bring those, those folks back. So, so 
on that that operation until a couple of years later when there was another tragedy with with another shoot down of a Chinook full of seals um at that time that that tragedy resulted in the most seals lost on a single day in the history of the seals and so that's the you know that's kind of your what was supposed to be not not in in hopefully nobody misunderstands that not that this was a quest for glory or anything sure. like that but it was a chance to do what I'd spent my entire life training to do right. and it went completely sideways and then and then that's what you have and so it it becomes you know something where you try and and say what do I do with that you know going forward what what do I do with that how do I what in my life is ever going to be as significant as that moment in time was again. And so I think, you know, writing without sanction in a lot of ways was, I had a, a friend who said that in a good book, a, the, the novelist is trying to answer a question for themselves in the pages of that book. Right. And I think in without sanction somewhat, that was, that was certainly true is, you know, how, how do I come to terms with that question? You know, how do how do I do something that lets me feel like um, I remember going to have a moment in time that was as significant as that one again? You know, and and you know you can't, but you have what's maybe head knowledge and heart knowledge. It's how do you reconcile what your head knows with what your heart still believes? I guess has it helped? Yeah, I think it has, and I think. Um, what was really a, you know, one of the things when, when I did my book signing in uh, my hometown in, in Westchester, Ohio, or what was my hometown where I grew up, it just so happened that a guy I flew with in Afghanistan had heard um, a, an interview I did on the radio and came to that book signing. And we were able mm-hmm. to connect and kind of talk about some of those things. And And I think for me, you know, what I say in my signings is that the guy who was my front seater on that mission where everything went wrong, he was struggling with a lot of the same thing I was. And in fact, he left army aviation, went and became a green beret. And, and I think was kind of chasing that significance again, right? Like this time I'll do it again and things will go right. And I think that might be part of the reason why I became an FBI agent and a SWAT team guy for a while as well is that, subconsciously you're chasing an opportunity where things it'll be that significant and things will be right this time will work out the way they're supposed to. And so he was my front seater was struggling with a lot of the same things I was, and we never had talked about it. We never talked about it. We never kept in contact with it. And so finally a mutual friend brought us back together. And now we text every June 28th, 2005, or we talk and that's, part of what I say at my signings and stuff is that you, you as a, as a veteran, as a first responder, as a police officer, somebody's seen that the best thing you, you can do is share that story and share that story with other people who probably have similar stories, who have things like that, that they are trying to go through. You know, when, when I got out and one of the things that I, I probably did wrong and lots of veterans do wrong is that when you're in the military, you don't really have to deal with that. You don't have to deal with what's going on because the operational temperature or tempo is so fast because everybody is dealing with something similar. But when you get out and you're completely cut off from that community 
And now you have a bunch of new friends or civilians who are well-meaning, but have never walked through that before. That's usually when you're trying to process it. And that's when it's hardest. And I think every, nobody ever said anything to me that was magic, but a friend of mine who was um, the Ranger QRF leader in, in Tarkar Gar, which was another um, in the beginning of Afghanistan, another horrible thing where Chinook was shot down with a with a bunch of rangers, and he lost quite a few guys on the top of that mountainside. He looked at me at one point after I told him my story, and he said, "You didn't do anything wrong. You know, there was nothing you could do." And he didn't say anything that that everyone else hadn't said a million times, but because it had much more of a gravitas for me because it was coming for someone who had been there, who had done that. And it was almost like he was, you know, somehow granting me absolution by saying someone who had been there, who knew better and said there was nothing you could do. And I think that's kind of the power of of sharing your story and what I've tried to encourage other folks to do as part of this. This is a might be an unusual question, but you yeah. have such a viscerally powerful story that you were able to translate into a motivation for a, a very mm-hmm. powerful book. Sure. Do you fear not having that same story for your sophomore effort and books beyond? Yeah, I think it's, I think some of it is, um, maybe not having, not, not being afraid of not having that same story, but wanting to still bring something that evokes as much passion as that first one does. And I think, you know, going back to the, the analogy my friend told me about having a question that you work out in the pages of that novel to have something that is big enough for me to both spend a year, um, a year of my life writing it and then to do it that same justice, I think to say, here's something I've wrestled with or something that I went through and I want to bring that to the pages with, hopefully as much a much as much truth as I did with the first book. So it's certainly not not quite in the same words that you just said, but it is certainly something I think about every time I sit down to write a story. Yeah, I just kind of envision myself like, okay, oh. I have all these elements. How how do I go forward? And and it has yep. to be hard. It could be as simple as I had a fantastic interview with a mm-hmm. former KGB spy and everybody just resonated with it. It was just incredible. And, and there is an element of like, Oh, what do I do next? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> and I mean, like in your case, you only get that initial contract the one time. Yeah. And yeah. there's been interviews. My friend, Chris Lockhead did an interview with mm-hmm. um, somebody who's on the um, golden state warriors. And he talked about mm-hmm. how that first championship meant the world and everyone thereafter just didn't have the same, yeah. you know, yeah. quality. So maybe, maybe you're living vicariously through your friends, like a yeah. pace group leader in a way. Yeah. And, and I do think, um, kind of taking that living vicariously through my friends and in one interview, um, I had a person ask me, are you Matt Drake? And I'm like, I'm absolutely not Matt Drake, but I've stood in the room with him before. And sure. and when I got out of the FBI, I was I was fortunate enough to work um, with a company that marketed technology to Special Operations Command that was staffed um, almost exclusively with folks who were veterans of that community. And it gave me this very unique 
vantage point into that community and the people who do that. And I'm, and I still kind of work in that area in my day job. And so I'm always kind of collecting stories. I'm always trying to understand their viewpoint, what they've done before. And if it's, and, and have been lucky enough, like in the, in without sanction, there was a, one of the, the big scenes in the book was Matt's Hayho jump. And I've, I've never done that. I've never jumped out of a perfectly good um, airplane, but I had a very good friend who was from a special operations um, unit who had done that many, many times. And I was, and he was kind enough to read that and critique, you know, early versions of the scene and do that. And so I, I think certainly you have to, if you want what you're writing to ring true, there's some amount where you have to have a connection to the community you're writing about. And so, you know, Daniel Silva, I think is probably one of the best, if not the best, um, writers in the espionage genre right now. And if you read the acknowledgement section of his book, he's always citing all these unnamed, you know, Mossad folks that he've met or the, you know, and so I think you have to, as a writer, you know, part of your job is to make up a really compelling story, but part of it is for you to know enough, you know, or be rooted enough in, in the folks and the lives that you're talking about, that somebody from that community opens it up and says, I could believe this. You know, I, I could see, I could see, yeah, this is a story, but this is a good story. And, and if you got that person, then you're doing the right thing. And that was kind of one of my tests with without sanction. You know, one of my biggest fears is I never wanted the friends I'd made from that community to pick up the book and be like, you haven't represented, you know, the Ranger regiment correctly. You haven't these things. And so I spent a lot of time doing that and giving folks drafts of it and versions because I wanted it to echo true. And it's, it's a novel, you know, it's obviously it's, it's, if it was real life, it'd be boring, but it's, but I wanted it to be enough where they say, yeah, I could believe this. This is a good story. And when I got comments like that, I figured I was on the right track. Well, perfect. And to close out, I understand you have a new challenge where you have a character who is not your own. (laughs) And it's kind of a big deal. So you want to tell us what you're doing? Yeah. So I've been, as I said before, what kind of brought me to this genre and and made me want to be a writer is when I was 13 or 14, uh, my friend down the street gave me a copy of Red Storm Rising by Tom Clancy. And, um, you know, it blew me away. I think Clancy is still um, the person who pioneered this genre and uh, very fortunate that my editor, Tom Colgan, was Tom Clancy's editor uh, for a period of time and now is the editor for both the Tom Clancy se- senior series that uh, Mark Cameron does a fantastic job with and Mark Graney had written on before, along with a bunch of other folks. And then the Jack Ryan Jr. series um, that Mike Madden was writing up until now and uh Tom Colgan, my editor, asked me if I would be interested in writing um, the next Jack Ryan book. And so it was, you know, when we had that conversation, it was at first, you know, I was kind of dumbstruck and said, can you say that again? Like what (laughs) you wanted me to write a Tom Clancy book? (laughs) And it was, um, you know, it was daunting because there, man, there might be 27 or 28 or 29 something books in that series. And, and, And the last thing you want to do is to you want to do something that's worthy of of what Tom has done and what all of those fantastic writers have done before. And at the same time, 
you hope the kind of that same but different analogy I talked about before is what can you bring that's a little bit different um, or how can you help take the the series in, in, in a different direction or at least build on it? Josh, when you talked about the Robert Ludlum stuff before mm-hmm. that Brian did, um, Josh Hood is a good friend of mine and he writes um, the Treadstone series that's also ah. tied with that. And so Josh kind of put it as Ludlum and Clancy are, are really good parallels. I mean, oh, yeah, yeah, are, yeah. I mean, their stature, their place, how they influence. Absolutely. It's a, really fascinating. Absolutely. And and the way Josh explained it is he felt like somebody gave him the keys to a Bentley and he just wanted to take it out and bring it back without putting too many scratches on it after <laughs> after putting it in the garage. And and I think that's something similar is, you know, I'd, I'd spent a lot of time on the phone with Mark Graney, who had written both of them and would go back with Mike Madden and forces like you've been given you know the first time i sat down on my computer and wrote the words jack ryan and knew that that was a story i was, I was like i'm in bizarro world no that's your new surreal <laughs> right moment. now like how am i doing yes exactly and so yeah so i'm i'm writing the first my first um jack ryan jr series and it will be out in june of of 2021 so 21 will be kind of a cool year for me because the second matt drake book the Outside Man will come out in March, and then my first um, Jack Ryan Jr. book will come out in June. So it'll be it'll be a neat year. That is fantastic. Now, where can we follow you to find out more, keep track, or keep tabs on you? Yeah, so I'm on um, Twitter and Facebook both, um, and and my handle for both is Bentley Don B. So at Bentley Don B, and then um, so both of those places, and you can sign up for my newsletter on on the Facebook page as well. well fantastic, and we will definitely be following you. Absolutely, thank you, Eric. It's been great talking with you. Well, thanks so much for coming on. Wow, wasn't that story impactful? Don Bentley is a a true patriot, has really served his country, and is a great man. Don't forget to check him out on YouTube next week where you can ask questions yourself, not just about his time in the military, but also writing. I think it's a very fascinating subject on how it works and what is going on and not being an overnight success. And also... If you like this show, there are a couple other shows you might want to try out. My good friend Dan Clark has a show called The Gladiator Way, where he helps people break through and have a better mindset and leading a better life. You'll know Dan from American Gladiators, where he was the character Nitro. Also, I'd like to shout out my good friend Christopher Lockhead at Follow Your Different and Lockhead on Marketing. These shows are both phenomenal, and Chris's a hero of mine. He's an amazing, amazing guy. And last, I'd like to recommend this week, Grumpy Old Geeks with Jason DeFilippo and Brian Schulmeister. This is one of my go-to shows that I can't get enough of. Check them out at GOG.show or Grumpy Old Geeks in your podcast player of choice. Thanks again.